a key question for all of us. Before that, as you've come to expect, I usually have a little story. And uh, my wife and I are recently watching a, a documentary um, on, uh, on hospitals. And uh, this one story was about a mountain lion attack. And these three uh, friends were, were mountain biking which hits home, close to home because uh, we mountain bike. And uh, these two girls in the sky, they're out mountain biking, and the girl comes around the corner and sees her, her friend uh, with the mountain lion on top of her. The mountain lion had, had the friend's head in its mouth and was dragging this girl uh, off of the trail. And so, so the girl that came up on this scene, um, she jumps off her bike and runs in and, and wrestles her friend away from the mountain lion. You know, pulls, you know, pulling the friend one way as the mountain lion's pulling the other way, and uh, the mountain lion took off. And they were able, the end of the story is, you know, after a lot of uh, surgery and a lot of help, uh, she, was, she was okay, and she survived that, that just crazy attack. But as I was, I was watching that and thinking about that, what came to my mind is, I hope I'd be that kind of friend. Um, you know, I, I'd like to think I would be, and uh, but faced there with a with a mountain lion, you know, which is basically a lion without the fuzziness, um, and we have them around here. Um, I thought just the the nerve of this of this young lady to to wrestle her friend away from a mountain lion. Yeah, I thought I, I hope I would be that kind of, of person. And the fact is, we don't really know what we're made of until we're faced with a trial. You know, when, when life is just kind of going, going on, things are okay, we like to think we're a certain way, and then tragedy strikes, a crisis hits, and we find out what we are really like, what is really inside. Um, now, all of us, we face difficult things. All of us... Uh, if we live long enough, we'll face difficult things in the future. And we want to have a faith in the Lord, a relationship with God, a Christianity that's not just a fair-weather faith, but that stands true and is real, legitimate, and genuine uh, in the hard times as well as the, the, the pleasant times. We want to respond right under pressure and under disappointment and under grief and under trials. And I think... Uh, in this passage, we see a couple of, of key truths that underline uh, all of this. And the first is, the essence of a true relationship with God is that we trust Him. This we see talked about throughout the Bible, this theme of, of, uh, of trusting, you know, believing God. That, that is, uh, if you just boiled it down, that's what a relationship with God is. It's that we trust Him. But the evidence of a true relationship with God is that we, we turn to him. When, um, when the pressure's on, when the crisis strikes, when we get that phone call we didn't want to get, or whatever it is, when we turn to God as our first reaction, that's evidence that we trust God. So last week we talked about turning to God from something, you know, from our tendency to wander from, from sin and to turn back to God on track, so to speak. Well, today we're talking about a whole different kind of turning to God. It's a turning to God uh, for something, <laughs> turning to God for help. Help me, Lord. Uh, I need you right now. 
So we'll be in 2 Kings uh, 18 to 20. We won't be in, in 20 very much, but, um, but uh, we'll, it, chapter 18 of 2 Kings sets the context for the story that we're, we'll talk about today. Here's what's happening. Remember last week, we had another whole set of kings. Uh, we see all the multicolored ones. Those are all the dynasties of the northern kingdom of Israel. A bunch of just, um, just failed attempts at leading because, um, because king after king turned their back on the Lord. And their dynasties ended, and then ultimately the whole kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, was, was wiped out by the powerful... Uh, Assyrian army, and that was the end of Israel. And then we saw Judah, um, it, the continued dynasty of David, who just uh, persisted, and we see kind of a mixed bag, some good, some bad. Most recently, we had um, Ahaz, who was, who was bad, and, uh, and we'll be introduced to Hezekiah today. But just this morning, as we're singing these, uh, these Christmas hymns, these carols of the faith, talking about the, the true um, uh, descendant of Jesse, the true heir to the throne, Jesus Christ our Savior, I thought, how delightful that we always know that Jesus will always be the kind of king that we need. It's not this gamble of, oh no, what's going to happen next? It's our Savior, our King, the King of Kings, is a good good king all the time. So I just was finding a lot of encouragement in that as we, we sang those hymns this morning. Okay, so northern kingdom is gone. Assyria wiped them out. The southern kingdom, kind of this little remnant, you know, barely two tribes. Um, they've lost a lot of ground. They lost their, their frenemies, Israel, to the north. And, uh, and they're just kind of in a little bit of a pathetic shape. And enter uh, Hezekiah. Well, Hezekiah gets rave reviews right from the beginning. And we'll start in the beginning of chapter 18. It says this. In the third year of Hosea, that was the final king of uh, the northern kingdom, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, he became king of Judah. He began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And verse 3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. So after a lot of hit and miss, a lot of crazy things happening, um, a really bad king Ahaz, we have uh, Hezekiah who did right. He did good in the eyes of the Lord. It's, it's always a, a sigh of relief when that happens. So Hezekiah is, is kind of a hero in um, uh, among the Hebrews, among uh, Israel, Israelis today. Uh, he was a really great king. He's known for a lot of things he did. And one of the things he did was a lot of religious uh, reform. And uh, verse 4 talks about that. It says, He removed the high places, which we keep hearing about that so many kings didn't remove. And he broke the pillars, and he cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. And they called it Nahushtan. So really kind of a strange thing. If you remember far back into the Old Testament, um, the, the bronze uh, snake that they, that they raised up um, on a pole, well, apparently they kept that around. And then they brought it out and they started worshiping this snake, um, this bronze 
serpent, and they gave it the name Nahushtan, which just sounds like so mysterious. And, uh, and so Hezekiah got rid of that, among other things. And just pretty recently, uh, just last year, they were doing some excavation in, in Lachish, which is a, a city that we'll see in our passage today. And they found, you know, you know how a tell works? There's like mounds of different um, eras of civilization piled on top of each other. Um, well, they're looking at the time period of Hezekiah, and they find this. They find uh, the caption of this article is, when a king means business, archaeologists find a stone toilet that desecrated massive shrine. And so there's this pagan shrine in Lachish, and Hezekiah, or under his reign, under his leadership, they destroyed that shrine, and they placed a, a toilet on top of it, just to say, you know, you know, well... Just to say, <laughs> you can fill in the blanks. Uh, I'm not thinking anything bad in my head. I'm just trying to put words to it. And you can see this, this ancient toilet. They, they dug this out. The rest of the article shows that they did, apparently, DNA tests on it and confirmed that it had not been used. Uh, that's just a little side thing. But it's just symbolic. And King Hezekiah was going in. He's saying, it's like, we don't believe this. This is trash. This is garbage. We don't believe it and put a toilet on top of it. So this is the kind of things that King Hezekiah did. Great uh, reformer. But what made uh, Hezekiah so great? Uh, The Bible tells us, verse 5. He trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He was great because he trusted the Lord God. And so again, we see the essence of the true relationship with God is that we trust him. But the evidence of a true relationship with God is that we turn to him. And we'll discover in this chapter whether Hezekiah actually, when the rubber meets the road, when hard things happen, whether he actually turns to God or not. Because in in the verses that follow, we see a major crisis in Hezekiah's reign. He followed God as prospering and reforming um, when things were going well. But what about when the worst nightmare imaginable ends up on his doorstep? The Assyrian army, who had just gobbled up nation after nation, just kept marching forward. You think of you know, Alexander the Great or, or, uh, or Nazi Germany or, or communist uh, Russia. It's like, where will this end? It just keeps gobbling up people after people, and, uh, and the king of Assyria ended up right on the doorstep of, of Hezekiah. So when we look at this, we'll first see how Hezekiah responds to all this, and we'll see three lessons about how each of us should turn to God in times of difficulty. So we pick up the story in 2 Kings 18, verse 13. And it starts like this. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, and he took them. So he took several of these really key cities that were, um, that were, that were fortified, you know, were made to defend um, the, the foothills that would come up into Jerusalem. And the one that they stopped at was, was Lachish. Here's a picture of it. I got to visit this place and run all over those, those rocks when I was in um, Israel. And it's about, um, it's about the distance from here to, uh, to slow. So, you know, maybe 
40 miles, 35 miles. And so this is where the massive army of Assyria, that's how close they were to the capital city and the holy temple of Jerusalem. They're just right down the road. Okay, kind of just side note, interesting thing. I don't know if you could really tell from this picture, but this is the main uh, ramp up to the city gate. And so you'd go up this ramp, and then there's a gate, and then there's a hard turn and another gate. It's so really def- uh, defendable. Be- for one thing, um, this is really bad for right-handed archers or, or right-handed uh, slingshots. Because imagine going up that, that ramp, and everybody's shooting from you on the wall, and you're trying to you know, shoot uh, the wrong way or slingshot left-handed. And so it's intentionally that way. And then you come up to that gate, and even if you, you rammed it and you know you had your chariots and everything, then you have to, to make a hard turn and do another gate. And so it's really defend, uh, defendable. Or, and, uh, and so what uh, Sennacherib did is he built a, a huge siege ramp along the side just to bypass that, but it takes a lot of time. Anyway, that's what he was, he was up to. And so, so this whole mess, this whole problem, this whole nightmare is, is right um, right in Hezekiah's lap. And uh, so here's what happens is Hezekiah, he makes this appeal to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, in verses 14 to 18. And basically, Hezekiah kind of grovels. He's like, okay, I was wrong. Sorry to resist. Sorry I made these alliances. Uh, what can I do to appease you? And Sennacherib says, oh, well, you can give me all this He lists these huge amounts of gold and silver. Well, Hezekiah does his best to come up with this. In fact, he goes so far as, verse 16, it says, um, at that time he stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So Hezekiah had just made all these reforms and these updates to the temple and overlaid, you know, re-overlaid the gates with gold. Well, now He's having to go and scrape that gold off uh, to give to the king of Assyria to appease him. And so they, they give him all that he asked for, but it wasn't enough. And so the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he sends this envoy to Hezekiah at Jerusalem in verses 17 uh, through 36. So this Assyrian envoy meets Hezekiah's servants, his high officials at the wall of Jerusalem. It's kind of like, you know, your people, we'll talk to my people at the gate. And uh, so big, big meeting, right at the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, Hezekiah's uh, officials are there. Uh, Snackrib's guy officials are there. And, uh, and Snackrib's officials, the, the representatives of Assyria, are just totally uh, taunting and uh, being belligerent and, and cursing the God of Israel. And they say it's pointless to trust in Egypt, and they make all these accusations, and then they finally say, and besides, your God told us to attack you. And so they just, you know, laid it all out there. Well, Hezekiah's servants, you know, on this side of the wall, say, "Uh, can you guys talk in Aramaic? Because we also speak Aramaic, because we don't want all these people on the wall freaking out, because, you know, all the citizens are coming out, like, what's going to happen? And so... The Rabshakeh, that's the, the leader of the Syrian um, envoy, uh, he responds by talking louder. And he shouts, he says, this message is for all the people because they'll all suffer. Uh, verse 27, uh, the Rabshakeh, 
really interesting that their names of these guys, they have the definite article in front of them. It's like, I want to be the Josh. So that's how they all came. The Rapshika, he said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to all the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine. So they're just getting really graphic, really threatening. In other words, we're going to lay siege to this city and starve you to death until you're just utterly destroyed and, uh, and just taunts him. He says, don't listen to Hezekiah. Your God won't save you. And then he lists off all these other nations and their gods that have not been able to save them. And he's like, and you're next. Well, the servants of Hezekiah, they return really distraught. What will the king do? How will he respond when the pressure is on? And here's where I think we have a lot to learn from King Hezekiah. Chapter 19, verse 1, Hezekiah responds. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, as soon as he heard this news and how that went, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. His very first response was to just turn to Yahweh, to turn to God, to take it to the Lord. And I think that's our first lesson is, what do we do when trial hits? Well, we turn to God first. It's the immediate response is just take it to the Lord. So because Hezekiah had trusted God, he immediately turned to God when crisis struck. And so the question for all of us as we read this is, where do we turn first when uh, crisis hits us? When, when we get the bad news, when difficult times come, when, we are, when we're discouraged, when we're distraught, where do we first turn to? And where we turn shows what or who we trust. I don't know if you've had experience with uh, taking your kids uh, to the mall during Christmas season. Uh, this is a scenario that happens all the time. You, know, you take a toddler out and uh, like, ooh, all the lights, it's really fun. And then they, uh, they maybe see Santa or they see something else and they, they freak out. And where do they reach for? They reach, reach for mom. <laughs> Sometimes dad, but you know, usually mom. It's like, who, who do I trust? Not the crazy man, you know, in the suit, and the beard, but, uh, but uh, I want my mom right now. And that's the idea is, uh, you know, we're, we are involved in all kinds of different things and whatever, and, uh, but when crisis strikes, do we just immediately turn to God? We do if that's who we trust more than anyone. Our first reaction when uh, the fires are headed towards our kid's school or, uh, or we find a strange lump or you're heading home and an ambulance passes you on your way to your house and you wonder if that's where they're going or, uh, or the highway patrol calls you. Years ago when we, uh, we lived here before, um, Heather was driving home late at night sometime and uh, I get a call. And it's something like, yeah, this is officer so-and-so, highway patrol. Are you the husband of, of Heather Lawrence? It's like, uh, fortunately, uh, the officer didn't take a breath. And the next thing she said was, um, everything's fine. <laughs> She's fine. But uh, her card broke down. Um, 
And so I went and found her. But, uh, but that brief moment of, you know, you get that kind of news, you know, I patrols at your, at your door. I know Phil's had to make some of those calls before. And just that, that heart stop, where do you go? Do you, do you, do your, does your mind immediately go to the Lord? Help me, Lord. Or is it, or is it you freak out? You, there's a certain person you call or you have a, some way to, to cope that's, that's not the Lord? So from Hezekiah, great job. First thing he did was go to the Lord. And the Lord is truly enough. And yet he invites us to... Um, to not go through it without others who also love the Lord. And this is our second lesson from Hezekiah, is turn to him with others. Uh, the very next thing he did in verse 2, says, and, and he sent Eliakim, who was over his household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest. So all, all these you know, high officials. He sent them together, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. So he gets all these uh, chief guys together and he sends them to uh, Isaiah, the prophet. And the reason he sent them at the end of verse 4 says, to lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So he calls together all his officials, his inner circle, and uh, he sends them to the prophet and he's like, pray, <laughs> pray with me. Pray for the, the remnant of, of Judah that the Lord would spare us for his sake. And it is such a privilege that we have as, as followers of Jesus to pray for each other. Prayer is, is powerful. <laughs> Prayer is what God invites from us. Um, if, you are, if you are sick and you have no um, monetary means, you don't have anything else to offer, you could still pray for one another. Um, our missionaries, we get letters from them, and they, they have various needs, financial needs. They need different kinds of help. They need encouragement, but they always request for prayer, and it's something we can all do. Those Connect cards uh, in the pew in front of you, on the back, there's a place for prayer requests, and uh, what we do with those is we pray for them. And there's a place you can mark if you just want our, our leadership to pray for those. And if you don't check that box, then we, we give it to the rest of the church so we can just pray for each other. And God has invited us to do this. And this is exactly what Hezekiah did. Disaster strikes. He's like, pray with me. <laughs> Please pray with me. So if you have a burden, share it so others can pray with you. If you know of a burden, just pray for them immediately. Strategically, specifically, pray. Invite others to join you as you take your burden to God. So the story uh, continues. Sennacherib, he, he threatened to lay siege to Jerusalem. Hezekiah prayed. He sent his inner circle to Isaiah to ask for prayer. And this is how Isaiah responds in verse 6 of chapter 19. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, the king, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So the prophet Isaiah receives a message from the Lord and, and brings comfort to the king. And he says, uh, 
The Lord says, don't fear. I'm going to take care of this guy. I'm ultimately going to, uh, to get rid of him in his own land. But he doesn't give a time frame for this. And in the meantime, it, it escalates. Uh, the crisis gets worse. The Rabshakeh, he rejoins the Assyrian army. He goes back, finds them at, uh, well, they were at Lachish, and then they go next door to another small town. And uh, the Assyrian army uh, and the Rabshakeh and the king send this message, this letter, back to Hezekiah. The gist of it is, uh, your doom is coming. But here we see in verse 10 to, uh, to 13 how that went. Verse 10, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And here's the letter. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who are in Telassar? Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of, of Hina, or the king of Eva? You know, he's just listing off all these people. Look at they all fell, nation after nation, to, this, to the Assyrians. Don't even try. You're like this little Judah, this little remnant, and we're coming to destroy you. You'd be a fool to trust in your God because he's going to fall just like all the others. So what is Hezekiah's next move? Verse 14. So he received this letter from the hand of the messengers. He read it, and then Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. It's just this great symbol. He takes his problem and he physically just spreads it out there in the temple before the Lord. You know, if you maybe have received a, a, a Dear John letter, you know, let's just be friends. Or an overdue bill. Or a report card. Or divorce papers. Or lab results. Eviction notice the pink slip, whatever it might be, and take that and literally just place it open before the Lord. Lay it before his feet and turn to him in prayer. So we turn to God first, we turn to him with others, but, um, but we turn to him in, in actual praying. You know, what do, we, what do we say? What do we seek from the Lord when we talk to him? How do we pray? And we see that Hezekiah seeks uh, three things. When he prays, and it's really a model for how we should all pray. And, and this starts in verse 15. It says, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, and he said, first of all, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So first of all, he starts his prayer by seeking just the majesty of God. He seeks not something from God first, but just he seeks to encounter God. He, he's uh, aware of and experiencing the greatness, the majesty of God. He, he just 
recounts it back to God. He's like, you're the God who made heaven and earth. You're the creator of all things. You alone are God. You're enthroned above the angels. And just, he recognizes that. And that, that couches the whole rest of the prayer. And that's, that's the model of the prayers of the Bible, is that we begin by just acknowledging God's majesty. The New Testament um, model of prayer where Jesus taught his disciples, it starts off like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The prayer starts off with a recognition and acknowledgement of just how majestic, how holy God is. May, may your fame just be overwhelming in majesty. And this needs to be what we seek first. So we come to God, we got this big problem, and we need to start off by saying, okay, my problem's big, but God is bigger. You're, you're, you're just way bigger than this. And no matter how my problem turns out, Lord, you are just gloriously perfect and powerful and wise. Put this all in perspective of who God is. There's kind of a, a modern classic on prayer by Dick Eastman called The Hour That Changes the World. And he suggests um, kind of this pattern to pray that, that takes an hour and there's 12 five-minute segments of different kinds of prayers that are in the Bible. And uh, he recommends the very first one and the very last one are both praise or, or worship, just acknowledging who God is. That's how we, that's how we, uh, we frame everything else in prayer is placing it inside the context of how majestic God is. But he has invited us to actually make requests of him as well. And that's what we see uh, Hezekiah do next. Uh, he, he goes and he seeks the help of God in verses 16 to 18. 16 says, uh, Lord, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open, my eye, open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire because they weren't gods, but just the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So he continues and says, Incline your ear, O Lord, hear me. In other words, help. <laughs> you're glorious, you're, mad, you're majestic, you're amazing, and I need your help. <laughs> And this is how I need your help I, with this problem with Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who's knocking on my doorstep. So we acknowledge his power and his, his ability, and we just ask for help. We boldly seek God's help, but ultimately, we seek God's glory. Not just for us to be aware of it, as in seeking his majesty, but, but that the world would see his glory, that he would be glorified. His name would be, um, his, his fame name would be spread around. Verse 19 says, uh, this is finishing his prayer, he says, So now, O Lord our God, save us please from his hand. And why? That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So in his prayer, as Hezekiah comes and he has this huge, insurmountable problem, uh, he finishes his prayer by saying, uh, please help me so that people would glory in you. 
so that people all over the world, all these kingdoms in the far-off reaches, would hear what the Lord God has done. And this needs to be what drives, um, drives our prayers to God for help. Even, even bigger than our crisis is God's plan to reveal his glory to the world. See, the point is that people would come to know how glorious God is. When you come to God on your, your behalf or on behalf of someone else, uh, we need to seek his glory, seek the fame of his name. So whether it's sickness or crisis or tragedy, we need to have the frame of mind that says, okay, God, I know you could take me around this, please do, or over this, but if it brings you more glory to walk with me through this, then, then so be it. This, of course, is exactly the model of Jesus in the garden when he was facing the most horrendous thing possible. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In the just short statements of of Jesus, we have these same themes. You know, all things are possible for you. God, you are majestic and over everything. Anything's possible. Remove this cup. In other words, help. (laughs) If possible, another way. And then, yet not what I want, but what you want. Ultimately, seek the glory of God the Father. A model for prayer for all of us. So the, the narrative continues. What happens? Isaiah prophesied, uh, Isaiah responded to all this by prophesying the defeat of Sennacherib and ultimately the fall of Assyria. And this takes up the chunk of the rest of the chapter, or a lot of it is Isaiah's prophecy against um, Assyria and the king of Assyria. And a, a, great, a great comfort, and uh, it's not just empty words because the chapter ends like this. End of story in verses 35 to 37. Imagine this massive army just camped all out, um, you know, waiting to lay siege to Jerusalem. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Let's pause there. We see in history... uh, the Assyrians kept good records of all the awesome things they did. And they just don't mention anything about this siege of Jerusalem. Uh, we could see why. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he departed and he went home with his tail between his legs. And he lived uh, in Nineveh, the, the capital. And sometime later, he was worshiping in the house of, of Nishrach, his god, and Adramelech, and Sherazer, there's so many great names and kings. Two of his sons, they struck him down with the sword, and then they escaped to the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So, so this king of Assyria, this great, great threat, Isaiah the prophet spoke against him, and in his hometown, in his home uh, temple, in front of his so-called god, his own two sons went and killed him, and another of his sons uh, took his throne. God, God took care of the situation 
without Hezekiah actually really having to do anything except plead with the Lord. God decided to miraculously intervene in response to Hezekiah's prayer and for the sake of God's glory. Um, God is just as powerful today. He's, he's at work. Sometimes he brings us around a situation like happened here. Sometimes he walks with us right through, but it's all for his glory. Here's a song that um, I used to hear in, in high school. It's farther and further ago. Gary Chapman says, Where do I go when I need a shelter? Where do I go when I need a friend? Where do I go when I need some helping? Where do I go? Back on my knees again. It's like when the world falls apart, go to the Lord in, in prayer. Cry out to him. And so here's our challenge. Simply turn to God, confident that he's attentive, that he's wise, that he's powerful to respond. And remember, this is all framed within his glory. We want the world to know how great God is, that, that he has come to our rescue, that he, he sent us a Savior. We want to shout it uh, everywhere we go. We want to tell our friends. We want to, to post it on on Facebook. We want to, you know, send it in our Christmas cards. We want to tell it on top of every mountain that we have a Savior that's come to rescue us. And that's what we are celebrating at Christmas. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I I am so, so thankful that you've come to our rescue um, and you've done it through your Son, Jesus, who is the perfect King the perfect Savior, and the perfect friend. And so we place our our lives uh, in your hands, and we trust you with our lives. And because of that, uh, may we just be so quick to turn to you. May we dwell with you in the good times and just cling to you in the the hard times. And uh, in all of it, may your name just be glorified and 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 praised and may the fame of your greatness just be spread to the ends of the earth in jesus name amen